When you hear the words New York, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Is it a city that never sleeps? Buildings that could make the Tower of Babel blush? Endless traffic shuffling on concrete seas, and rows of lights trying to sell you the latest in home electronics, fashion, and film. New York City has long since fascinated its residents, and millions of tourists who flock to the Big Apple. However, there is a bigger feature in the state of New York that you may not even consider. New York, at least to me, is a mountainous place, full of lush green forests and blue lakes and streams. It is untouched, a publicly preserved landscape painting that could be experienced. At this time of year, if you viewed the Adirondacks from the air, you would see the bright orange and red colors of the changing leaves as they weave their way around the many lakes and streams that populate the park. The word Adirondack first appeared in the title of a Ralph Waldo Emerson poem. Many of the early settlers to the area, which included the Dutch and the French, believed the Adirondacks were a lost tribe, forgotten to time. The word Adirondack is most likely an Iroquois word. Translated, it means tree-eater or bark-eater. It's unclear where the word came from, but many researchers believe it's a derogatory term the Mohawk tribe used to describe the Montaneus tribe. The Montaneus, or the Innu, were subsistence foragers and often ate the inner bark of trees. They called the northeast portions of Quebec and some northern portions of New York home, and the Mohawks most likely saw them as a threat. In 1609, it was the Montanean tribe, aligned with other Algonquin tribes, that sailed down Lake Champlain with Samuel de Champlain to do battle with the Mohawk tribe on the shores of Ticonderoga. For the tribes that settled in the area, most lived in the lowlands. Instead, they created game trails for hunting and foraging, and the region came to be a symbol for the Haudenosaunee, or the Iroquois Confederacy. The Confederacy consisted of the Seneca, Oneida, Mohawk, Cayuga, and Onondaga tribes, and was the most powerful native alliance in North America at the time. French and Dutch colonies were indebted to the Confederacy for trade and, in particular, for beaver pelts. The pelts became popular in European fashion during the 17th century, but it wouldn't be long before supply dwindled. The Confederacy grew more and more powerful and made war with tribes as far west as the Mississippi and as far south as the Tennessee River. As the Dutch lost their colonies to the English and the French strengthened their alliances with the Native Americans, the Adirondacks became center stage for the French and Indian War. It wasn't until 1768 that Europeans began to settle the area, lured there by companies with promises of new land. In 1792, the Casterland Company of Paris was created to relocate the aristocracy after the French Revolution. But conditions were too harsh for the new settlers, and the company folded after five years. It was also around this time that John Brown, for whom Brown University is named, attempted to establish eight new townships, known as Industry, Enterprise, Perseverance, Unanimity, Frugality, Sobriety, Regularity, and economy. These two failed after only four years. In the mid-1840s, abolitionist Garrett Smith 
attempted a radical settlement for formerly enslaved African Americans. His father was a partner of longtime Iroquois trader John Astor, and he had settled a farm in the region in 1806. The settlement was at the center of the hamlet of Petersboro, in the village of Smithfield, both named for Garrett's father, Peter. Garrett took over the estate and land business from his father in 1819 and spent much of his new fortune on philanthropy. Petersboro became a haven for abolitionist sentiment and discussion. Garrett invited some 3,000 African-American families to come live there, though few took him up on the offer. Years later, Garrett Smith would sell land in the town of North Elba to famed abolitionist John Brown, who was attracted to the area by Garrett's cause. In the 19th century, the Adirondacks were heavily romanticized in the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson and in books like James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans. Books like Joel Tyler Headley's Adirondack or Life in the Woods created a tourist boom to the area with its beautiful descriptions of the woods, mountains, and streams. By 1875, there were over 200 hotels in the Adirondacks. And with the tourist trade came economic opportunity. The region came to be known for its logging industry, but by the early 1870s, the residents started to realize that overlogging would contribute to the economic downfall of the region. And in 1894, the Adirondacks became one of the first wildlife preserves in the United States. Today, the Adirondack Park has protected 5.8 million square miles of land, lakes, and mountains. Before the Adirondacks were settled, the region had a reputation among the Dutch who believed mysterious creatures, like unicorns, dwelled in the vast forests of the region. For the Puritans of New England, maintaining a clearing and a pasture was essential to differentiating between their own perceived civility and the uncivilized native person. Crossing into it brought about calamity and a reduction toward wildness. People who spent too much time in the woods returned to civilization changed, but not in the way that Emerson or Thoreau would later talk about. Tales of witchcraft and the like certainty abounded. The French held similar beliefs about the frontier and the wilderness. There are many tales of Corriere du Bois and voyagers going mad after living in the woods for too long. These French tales of wild men and loup garou later merged with indigenous tales of the Wendigo and created new, uniquely North American tales of the unknown in the woods. To say the least, these wild regions held a power over minds and the Adirondacks were no different. In 1976, one such creature walked from myth to a remote road outside Whitehall, New York, at the southern border of the Adirondack Mountains. My name is Rob Christofferson, and welcome to the Adirondacks.
1603, Samuel de Champlain was sent to explore the regions of southern Quebec and northern New York and Vermont. The local Algonquin tribes spoke of a creature they called the Gugu. These were large, hairy wild men of the woods, and it was believed that the Gugu was responsible for those that went missing. The legend so affected Champlain that he devoted space to the creature in his journal. One story in particular from fellow French explorer Sierre Pervert struck him the most. Fair warning, there is racist language used to describe the Algonquins here. Quote, He passed so near the haunt of this frightful beast that he and all those aboard his vessel heard strange hissings from the noise it made, and that the savages he had with him told him that it was the same creature, and were so afraid that they hid themselves wherever they could, for fear it should come to carry them off." It was the fear the Native Americans had for the Gugu that convinced Champlain the creature was real. But many years later, the settlers that would tame the Adirondacks would come into contact with a creature they called the Wild Man. The first sighting of a wild man in the region was reported in 1818. An unnamed man, whom we're told is a gentleman of unquestionable veracity, claimed to see a strange hairy creature running through the woods in the northwestern town of Ellisburg. The frightening creature approached the man, nearing 50 feet, before crashing through the forest. The experience frightened the man and the town so much, they organized a hunting party of over a hundred townsfolk to track down the creature, but no sign of it was ever found. Sightings like this would increase over the years and decades within and beyond the borders of the Adirondack Mountains. In 1868, there was a large number of sightings in the tiny town of West Milton, and here too, the townsfolk organized hunting parties, but failed to turn up evidence of any creature. In March of 1883, there was a rash of sightings in the town of Port Henry, just north of Ticonderoga. It was said that the wild man was a great scare to the region, frightening women and children. Some reported that the creature had been wearing a strange hairy overcoat. These sightings were occurring at a time when white settlers were wary of the woods, and it's hard not to see how Native American folklore grew into the soil, trees, and mountains for the new inhabitants of the Adirondacks. In 1961, one town would begin to emerge as the Bigfoot capital of the Northeast. That town is Whitehall, New York. Whitehall is small, boasting a population of only 4,000 people. But its major claim to fame is that it's the birthplace of the U.S. Navy. Originally known as Skeensboro, the town of Whitehall was established by a land grant by British officer Philip Skeen. Philip would eventually be forced to flee back to England after being declared an enemy of the state due to a number of shady land deals. The town became an important route that connected English and French colonies and became vital for the French during the French and Indian War. In 
1774, the town of Skeensboro was taken by the colonists, and it was here that Benedict Arnold built the first vessels in the American Navy. After successfully defeating the British forces at Valcor Island, the fleet returned to Whitehall, where it was destroyed, fearing that these ships would fall into British hands. Following the Battle of Saratoga in 1775, the town was permanently named Whitehall. In 1961, two women were walking near the woods of East Bay when a strange figure approached them. The women screamed and ran back to one of their homes. The terrified women told their story to their father, who telephoned the police, thinking that some prankster was terrorizing the woods. A search of the area turned up no leads. Sightings of large hairy creatures increased in the mid-1970s around Whitehall, and on the northwestern border of the Adirondack Mountains, near the city of Watertown. In February of 1974, one young couple parked in a remote area off of Winters Road. The two were engaged in a steamy makeout session when the driver noticed a large figure silhouetted against the falling snow. He described the creature moving with ease through the falling accumulation. The young lady never saw the creature, and after becoming uneasy by the whole situation, he told her that he forgot about plans he had made and drove the woman home. It appears in this instance that Bigfoot is a boom-boom buzzkiller. In May of 1975, Cliff Sparks, a former farmer, saw what he described as, quote, a sloth-like thing, roaming the first hole of his golf course. With the decline of farming in the area, Sparks converted his once-beloved farm into a modest 18-hole country club. On this night, it was around 11.30pm, Cliff was in the process of shutting down the sprinklers for the night, preparing for a busy weekend, when he was startled by, as he put it, quote, a great big hairy thing that was silhouetted against the moonlit skyline, end quote. To say that Clifford Sparks was startled by the creature is an understatement, but according to Sparks, the creature was more startled by him and Cliff's dog. The two locked eyes for a matter of seconds. He described the creature's eyes, years later, in a way that made them seem like laser beams were shooting out of them. He described them as lines of red light, and they were aimed at his dog. Now, you may remember in late 2017 that Guillermo del Toro, the famed Mexican film director, described seeing a UFO that was, quote, poorly designed. And it was del Toro's description that I thought of when I read Cliff Sparks' description of the Bigfoot he saw. Quote, it lumbered and walked with a very clumsy gait. The creature had a different knee and leg action than a man. I don't know how, just different. He goes on to say that the creature didn't seem to have much of a neck, and that its movements were very stiff and rigid. The creature stood only 35 feet away from him. It took off into the woods, creating the sounds of a creature that were not very graceful. The brush became loud as the creature crashed through the trees. Branches creaked and cracked as it moved deeper into the woods. The incident so affected Clifford Sparks that he included the creature on the Skeen County Country Club logo. On the drive-in, there is a sign that will greet you. 
the public are all welcome for 18 holes of golf. And on the sign is a Bigfoot pulling the pin for the first hole. On their website, they claim that it's a great spot for golf, and maybe you just might spot a Bigfoot. In 1976, a series of incidents would take place that would change the town forever, creating a permanent spot for Bigfoot in the town's culture and folklore. Brian Goslin had become a Whitehall police officer shortly after graduating from high school. It wasn't long after he married his high school sweetheart, Sue, that two children came along. Brian needed a steady job to support his family, and when a spot opened up on the Whitehall's police force, he joined. Brian was, for all intents and purposes, a no-nonsense kind of cop. Not a hard-ass by any means, but he wasn't afraid to arrest anyone that was breaking the law, including the children of local politicians. He was familiar with the strangeness that Whitehall afforded, growing up near Bear Road. One morning, when Brian was struggling to get up for school, the silence of the morning was shattered by a blood-curdling scream. It came from the forest next to the Goslin home, and it made the entire family uneasy. Brian's dad, Wilfred, grabbed a gun and headed out into the forest with the family's two dogs in pursuit of the sound. He came back a short while later with only one of the dogs. The other would return a day later, but it wasn't uncommon to hear similar sounds in the woods of Whitehall. Bear Road is located a couple of miles outside of Whitehall proper, and it is largely untouched, with the exception of a few homes spaced throughout the rural landscape. It's a place that perfectly symbolizes man's ability to live with the wild and untouched. In 1976, Bigfoot was not something the residents of Whitehall discussed around town. And sure, most towns have secrets they don't want getting out. But when you can't quantify your experience in the borders of the world itself, it becomes harder and harder to vocalize. The night of August 24th, 1976, was as typical as a late summer night can be. Brian was on duty, running a speed trap just outside of town. Sometime after 10, he noticed a truck speeding into town, and was just about to pursue it when it stopped and drove in the direction of Brian's car. The truck belonged to Marty Paddock, a friend of Brian's brother Paul. Marty and Paul flew out of the vehicle, and a cacophony of terrified voices said at once, We saw a monster. Brian assumed his brother and his friend were both high or drunk and playing a trick on him. They wanted him to come back out to the scene on Bear Road, but he couldn't just abandon his post. So he called his father, Wilfred, who was a police sergeant with the Whitehall Police Department, who agreed to go out there with the boys. Paul and Marty picked up another friend, Bart Kinney, and headed back out to Bear Road. They were joined by several other police officers, sheriff's deputies, and state troopers. The two teens told their story to the small group. Marty and Paul were on their way to do some night fishing on the Pulteney River. A few miles down Bear Road, they had heard a blood-curdling scream. Paul said it sounded like a pig or a lady in distress. They stopped near a field and yelled out, 
Hey, what's going on out there? When no answer came back, they drove up the road a little further and loaded a gun. They turned the truck around and drove back to the field where they had heard the sound. This time, they saw something crossing the road in front of them. So they drove a little further and turned around for a second time. In the dark, they could see someone walking near a telephone pole, but couldn't make out much. They grabbed a flashlight, and Paul aimed his gun outside the window. And when the beam illuminated the figure, they saw not a man, but a large, seven-foot-tall, hairy, hulking figure. It was staring straight at them. And then, it ran toward the truck. Marty hit the gas and tore into town. Wilfred and the group of local law enforcement were skeptical to say the least, but they all could hear the fear in their voices. The boys retraced their steps and showed the officers where the creature had been. It wasn't long before another scream pierced the hot night. One of the sheriff's deputies moved their car and shone their headlights on the field where they thought they heard the scream. And there, in the field was a large silhouette of a figure moving toward the back of the field. It walked bipedally and appeared to be about seven to eight feet tall. Its arms swung down to its knees and the creature took large lumbering strides. It covered a large distance in a short amount of time until it disappeared into a large hedgerow. They all had seen it, all of them, They had all seen the creature step over a fence, as if it were no obstacle at all. Brian talked to his father and his brother Paul the next day, and was convinced that they were telling the truth. His father wasn't scared by much, but Brian could tell that what he had seen was real. Brian made the decision to go out to Abair Road the next night to see if he could find the creature for himself. He ran into a friend, Jeff later that day, who was a state trooper, and the two made plans to head out there at around 11 p.m. They arrived in separate cars. Brian drove his directly into the field and parked there. This night was a little cooler, but there was an odd silence in the field. No crickets, no wind. All was quiet. Jeff had parked his car by a meadow and stood watch from the road. They spoke using CVs on a private channel. Shortly before midnight, they both heard loud sounds coming from the hedgerow in front of the car. It sounded like branches were being broken by something very large. And then, Jeff's voice came over the CB. What the hell is it? Holy shit, what the hell is it? Can you see it? Oh my god, I'm I'm getting the hell out of here. Brian still couldn't see anything, and he tried getting a response from Jeff, asking him what it was. Jeff just left him there in the field alone. Brian got back in the car, scared by what his friend had seen, terrified by what he couldn't see. He got back out of the vehicle with his gun in hand and a flashlight in the other. The door gave him shelter from anything that would be coming from the front. The forest was unnaturally quiet. Brian described it as if somebody had just flipped a switch. Then, 
He could hear large sounds coming from the hedgerow again. It stopped again. The sound changed. It was moving through the tall grass in the field. Brian knew the sound well. Then, all was silent. It was unnatural. He described it like a vacuum, where all sound was sucked out. The sounds of grass moving would start and stop, start and stop. Whatever it was moved across the field toward the car. Minutes passed, and whatever it was drew closer and closer. Brian couldn't see anything. Something told Brian that he should turn on the flashlight. An instinct. And there it was. It was directly in front of him. Unmistakably there. It was tall, seven to eight feet. A mass of reddish-black hair that hung down long like an orangutan. When the light hit the creature's blood-red eyes, it let out a blood-curdling scream that vibrated throughout Brian's body. It drew its hands up to its eyes to shield them. They were as big as the lids to a mayonnaise jar, as Brian described them. In that moment, his mind raced through a series of memories and thoughts. He was in shock. He thought about raising his pistol and taking aim. Should he shoot the creature? He didn't. Brian felt a little at ease when the creature didn't come any closer, even after the scream. The creature turned and walked away from Brian in the direction of the woods. The hair on the creature's backside was matted with sticks and mud. It took long, slow strides, moving quickly toward the back of the field. Before disappearing, the creature turned toward Brian and let out three deep grunts. He took this as a sign to leave and leave the creature be. Brian caught up with Jeff at the Silver Diner. He knew he'd be there, and when he asked Jeff what he had seen, he kept repeating the same phrase, I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. Coffee was spilling from his shaking hands. He never did tell Brian what he saw. Sleepless nights followed. He could see the creature every time he closed his eyes, and gathering evidence of it was on his mind. He returned to the area with his cousin and was able to find a single footprint. A day or two after the sighting, everything changed. The press flooded Brian's phone. They wanted the exclusive. The story appeared in the Glens Falls Post Star and a myriad of other publications. Bigfoot investigator Bill Brand interviewed all the witnesses involved and did the most thorough investigation that has ever been conducted on the Bear Road incident. Brian became close friends with Cliff Sparks, and the two bonded over seeing the creature. It brought them both a sense of comfort, knowing that it was real. Cliff never stepped foot on his golf course in the dark following the encounter. And years later, vocalizations were again heard from the first hole. A number of witnesses over the years reported encounters with Bigfoot on or near Bear Road. Hunters, fishermen, police officers, drivers, and so on. On the highways and in the towns that bring you closer and closer to Whitehall, Bigfoot has left his mark. In shops marketed toward tourists, 
could find tchotchkes bearing the creature's likeness. Perhaps it is because we are so close to the woods that we all share a fondness for a creature that science is uncertain of, but of which many people still claim to see, even today. This episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast was written and recorded by me, with writing and research from OSIC member David Britton. Thank you so much for listening, and for checking out this series of stories from the Adirondacks. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving us a 5-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. They really help us out. Another way you can support the show is by becoming a patron on Patreon patrons receive bonus audio and early access to the regular episodes when available. Visit patreon.com slash ourstrangeskies or ourstrangeskies.com to find out how to become a patron today. And while you're at our website, you can find our blog, links to episodes and show notes, as well as links to our social media profiles. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or walking in the fields off of Bear Road. In Grey We Trust. Yeah.